Guerrilla Project Management with Samad Aidan. We bring you engaging and thought-provoking conversations with today's leading project management experts and emerging influencers. Serena, welcome. Hi, Shamad. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on being awarded the PMI 2014 Project Management Office of the Year. Give us a general overview of WellPoint and the Government Business Division Group. Okay, sure. The, the, the period that the award was based on is actually um, between 2010 and 2014. And during that period, uh, the name of the company that this PMO was a part of actually changed three times. So we started with a company called Amerigroup, which was then purchased by a company called WellPoint, um, which then changed their name to Anthem Incorporated. And so if during the course of our conversation today you hear me refer to any of those companies, it's the same PMO um, that, that right. stood the test of time, but the company changed around us. And so um, the way that um, WellPoint was uh, organized and Anthem continues to be organized is really in two main divisions. Um, we are in the healthcare insurance business in the United States and we deliver managed healthcare solutions to a variety of different clients. And so uh, one half of the company is called the commercial and specialty division and they provide more traditional insurance plans that are paid for by employer groups. Um, the government business division, as, as its name indicates, really works specifically with the federal government and the state governments in the United States uh, to provide the, the programs, uh, health insurance programs that are covered um, by those government entities. And so for us here in the States, that's primarily the Medicare program, uh, which is a federal program covering um, people who are over age 65 or who may be permanently disabled. Um, and the Medicaid programs, which are state-sponsored programs, and um, you really need to um, have income qualifications in order to to uh, obtain Medicaid benefits. So um, if, if you happen to be um, income challenged and um, you meet the qualifications, then the state covers all of your medical expenses. And so um, the government business division for our company provides um, sort of an HMO style health plan to people who meet those income qualifications um, in, in the states that we uh, have contracts with. And so the state is paying the claims, um, but they hire us to administer the entire program for them. And um, the, the PMO that I'm responsible for um, operates in the government business division space and um, all of that business is procured. And so when we win a new contract with a state or the federal government, uh, then my team of project and program managers steps in to implement those new contracts. And what were some of the challenges uh, that were facing the organization as it planned for the implementation of the Affordable Care Act? Oh my goodness, I don't think we have a long enough time for this interview to go through all of those, but um, <laughs> the Affordable Care Act is um, you know, also known as Obamacare, and most people in, in the United States are very familiar with the fact that this legislation was passed back in 2010, um, but most people aren't as intimately familiar with all the various provisions. There's literally hundreds of provisions within the Affordable Care Act, and um, in a nutshell, that legislation 
dramatically changes the way that healthcare is delivered and paid for and administered in our country. And it's the most sweeping change um, probably that's ever taken place in, in our country with regard to healthcare delivery. And uh, for us, for our PMO, it, it, it changed everything. Um, all, all of our state and federal uh, agency customers have to change the way that they are approaching their programs and, and structuring their programs. All of the healthcare providers out in the communities that we serve have changes that impact them. All of the ancillary services related to healthcare, like pharmaceuticals and uh, durable medical equipment, virtually there's no place in the healthcare delivery system um, that is untouched by the Affordable Care Act. Um, in addition to that, so everything that existed has to change in some way, shape, or form, um, but in addition to that, the legislation calls for the development of some very innovative new ideas that have never existed before. And as project managers, we know that whenever you're being asked to do something that's never been done before, uh, defining requirements can be quite challenging. And so I would say that the, the thing that, the way that it showed up for us in our PMO is that our projects have gotten much more complex. They take longer than they used to because they are more complicated. And our requirements, which used to be fairly well defined in, in the government business area, um, are now not as well defined. And so we spend an awful lot of time in um, almost program design and then requirements um, elicitation based on, on trying to design things that just simply don't exist and never have. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a much more complicated environment. It requires my project managers to have a much higher skill set, not just project management technical skills, um, but as, as we see reflected in the PMI research and the pulse of the profession um, with the talent triangle, um, they have to have strategic business um, management understanding and they have to be very strong leaders as well. And so, um, you know, we work very hard to make sure that we're constantly pushing our people um, sort of up the development path so that they can keep up with the work that's in front of us. I can only imagine the, the atmosphere of, uh, of the changes that are happening outside of the organization that, that are driven by changes in the law and then how you were reacting and anticipating these changes and being open and adaptive to change as the, 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 the laws change from the outside. Talk about designing a plane uh, while you're flying it. Yes, <laughs> it's a very, that's an accurate statement. And, you know, I probably would not have identified my PMO as an agile project management organization. Um, and, and, and we still to this day probably don't practice technical agile project management. But our level of agility in terms of being able to react to constantly changing customer requirements and demands and the legislation uh, certainly has had to uh, go up several notches. You know, we have we live in a very fluid environment right now, and I think that we can anticipate that continuing for several years to come because the legislation, the Affordable Care Act, on its own, um, you know, goes for several years of implementation of the various provisions. And you know, if you couple that with the fact that we had a pretty severe economic downturn here in our country uh, over the past several years. 
um, that puts even more pressure on our state customers. So, um, you know, when people aren't working or working at as, as high-income jobs as they used to, the tax revenues go down for the state, and the amount of people who are qualified for the Medicaid coverage goes up. And so there's a huge dilemma there for those states because they're trying to stretch every dollar. They have less dollars to spend, and they're trying to stretch every dollar over more people now. And so the solutions that our company brings became even more essential to um, to our state customers. And um, I would never have imagined that um, being in in the healthcare insurance business would have in in the government business side of it would have somewhat insulated me personally from the effects of that downturn economy, but. Um, ironically, during during that period when the rest of the country was really struggling to keep meeting and having ends meet, you know, we were so busy trying to help our state customers tread water that that we almost didn't have time to notice um, yeah. the, the economic downturn. Before we talk about how you met uh, these uh, challenges. Talk about the Implementation Management Office that originated as part of the Amerigroup uh, Corporation. Okay, certainly. So the first thing I should probably explain is why we call ourselves the Implementation Management Office instead of a PMO, which is the terminology that most people would recognize and really is the award that we won. Um, and there, there is actually um, a, a story that is somewhat sad and humorous altogether. Um, as, as many people who are familiar with, with PMOs and their structure um, might understand, our company, when I arrived here seven years ago, um, had had previous experience with, with the idea of a PMO, and they realized that at some point in the future, if they were going to grow to the, the, the size that they had hoped for, um, that they were going to need that kind of a capability. And so they invested several million dollars in acquiring some very robust uh, PPM software, and um, they hired some folks that they believed were uh, competent project management professionals, and, and just invested in a very robust infrastructure, if you will, PMO infrastructure. Unfortunately, um, the organization itself was very young and naive and not ready to have that kind of robust organization in place, and um, they didn't have a defined uh, execution process. And so um, it ended up feeling like they spent an awful lot of money um, but didn't get a lot out of it. And so when I arrived here and I assessed what I was being asked to do, I spoke with the chief operating officer and I said, you realize this is a PMO? And he said, you will never use those three letters in this company because <laughs> we've had such a bad experience with them. And I thought, oh my goodness, where have I landed? <laughs> um, yeah. um, but you can do all those things that you're saying we need to do, but you can't call it PMO. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm hired to be the vice president of implementation management. Let's call it the implementation management office. And so it's 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 comical and you laugh because we can all relate to the reason this is not an uncommon experience for for immature organizations um but it's it's sad in that you know people don't clearly understand um how to develop a PMO and what the right steps are to take and so um the implementation management office um did originate in in Amerigroup Corporation and it came into being around um the, the 
Amerigroup was about 13 years old when I arrived here. And um, what, what I found when I arrived was that they were actually implementing new business and they had a um, sort of off the side of the desk process, if you will. They were still a small company, still somewhat of a startup. Um, and so people wore many hats and when they won a new contract, um, there would be a number of people who would get tapped on the shoulder and, you know, sort of the award winners, they had to keep doing their day job, but they also had to work on the new business implementation project. And uh, the reason that I was hired at the beginning was that they realized that the, they were starting to grow at a pace that was not going to be sustainable if they were going to keep that off the side of the desk approach. And so they knew they needed to do something different. Um, so I assessed the processes um, that were in place um, and I matched them up to the PMBOK, uh, you know, the project management um, body of knowledge, the guide from, from PMI. And, um, I, and I tried to map everything to one of the five phases of project management. And if there was something that was being done that didn't clearly map uh, to the project management life cycle, then um, we, we got rid of those things. And if there were gaps that, that needed to be filled, we filled those in. And so the first thing that we really did um, was put a policy and procedure manual in place that follows the PMBOK guide um, and, and the five phases of project management. So it's very clear um, what we do in the initiation phase, what we do in the, the planning phase, et cetera. Um, and then the, the next thing that, that we really had to attack was um, because we're a government contractor, we have um, very limited resources available to us. So my staff was very small when I first arrived. I had six people. And I realized if I was only going to have six people that they had to be top-notch. And in order to get top-notch um, you know, project management talent, I needed to work with our human resources area to um, develop a, a career path for project managers, not just within my department, but within the company. Because in order for project managers to see us as a, as a place to work, um, we needed to put those things in place. And so I leveraged PMI's Path Pro Career um, uh, ladder and for project management and the annual salary survey. And I worked with my HR department and we put together a career ladder and job descriptions that matched the PMI Path Pro career ladder and then set up compensation strategies that would help us attract the top project management talent in our area. And and that was really the, the genesis of, of beginning the implementation office. So I had some process and, and, and then I was starting to take care of how do I get the right people in place. And, um, and, and that's really, that's, it, was, it, it sounds simple when, when, when I explain it, but it, it takes time to, to move a culture, change the process that people are following, and then change people's mindset around what constitutes a project manager and what kind of requirements they have to have, etc. So Serena, what struck me is the fact that you focus first and foremost on the human side and put in the human infrastructure first. Historically, what PMOs first do, they, they first put you know, some kind of PPM software or processes, but you really focused on getting talent first. Talk to me a little bit about that approach. What was, what was the thinking and the philosophy? Because it's, it's a novel concept. <laughs> um, well, I think it was... Um it was sort of, it's, it's a great question. And I, I think that it was sort of intuitive based on what I told you about, you know, our chief operating officer's 
um, sort of reluctance to use the letters PMO, when I listened to the story that he told me about why, I thought, well, I'm probably not going to be very successful if the first thing I do is come in here and suggest that we buy a new, another expensive PPM application. I need to work with what's in place now. And, you know, whenever you're a new leader in an organization, it's a good idea to honor the success that's happened up to this point and the processes that got you there and the people that got you there so that you're not coming in and feeling, making people feel like, well, everything that happened before I arrived didn't, you know, kind of stunk and, and now we're going to do it my way. Um, it's just not my personal nature. So, you know, we kept um, many of the artifacts and the processes that, that they had in place, but we added a lot of things that, you know, were, were more PMI compliant and more robust. And um, we also, you know, we tried to practice what I call a, a minimally invasive um, project management approach. So if there was no good reason to do a certain thing or to fill out a certain form, then we didn't require that. And so having that process laid down allowed me um, to, to then move to the people um, aspect, and I did both of these sort of simultaneously, but I realized that if, because we had such limited resources, if, if, if I didn't have the very best possible six people that I was given, um, that I was going to be kind of hamstringing myself. I, I was going to um, limit my ability to succeed. And I know as a project manager that the place where I want to work is a place where I can move forward in my career. And so, um, I actually worked very closely with our HR partners and I said, you know, show me what job descriptions we have to work with. And there were actually 18 job descriptions that had the word project manager in them. But if you read through the body of the of the, the job description, they, they pretty much said the same thing. It was just this one's in accounting and this one happens to be over in IT and this one is in the marketing department. But you know, if someone came to me and said, well, how do I get to be from a project manager one to a project manager two, if you looked at the job description, there was, there was no good answer to that question. Um, and so when I turned to PMI and discovered that right there on PMI.org, free to any member, uh, is this whole robust set of job descriptions that, that PMI has developed along with competency surveys and uh, ways to assess people's competencies. But what I loved the most about that job, job description, set of job descriptions that they had was it's very clear um, when you're moving from project level to project level, project management level to project management level, as you're moving up, it's very clearly defined that, um, you know, at a lower level you're working under the supervision of a program manager or portfolio manager versus when you get to a higher level it says works independently to lead, you know, a complex project. And then it actually had parameters in there that said, you know, sort of, general number of people working on your project, whether they're all co-located or they're virtual, um, the amount of budget dollars that you're responsible for, et cetera. And those things all increased as you go up the project ladder uh, or the, the job description ladder. And so, you know, it made very clear sense to people coming in at whatever level they came into, okay, here's what I'm expected to do now at my level. And if I want to get to the next level, um, here's what I'll have to add to my skill set. Um, and the other thing that we added to the job descriptions was at the PM3 
level and above, you had to have your PMP certification. No ifs, ands, or buts. And that sort of put a, a, a line in the sand, if you will, um, that said to, to applicants, these people take this seriously. So if I'm a serious project manager and this is um, something that I cared about enough in my career to go on and get certified, this is an organization that's going to respect that and understand what that means. Um, and I took it one step further in, in negotiating with HR to say, if I require this in the job description, I must therefore support it. And so if one of my PM1s or PM2s is interested in getting to PM3 and they need to become credentialed, I need to pay for that. I need to invest in that talent. I need to provide them with internally within our organization 30 contact hours and project management instruction so that, that they know that as a company we support um, them learning those skills. I need to cover their annual PMI dues and their renewal fees and those kinds of things. And so we put all of that in place and, and we did it because I have a core belief that if you take care of your people, they will take care of your business. And, and we practice that vigorously. Um, we invest very heavily in our talent to this day. Uh, every quarter I pull everybody uh, into you know, a, a full day of skill building and, um, and we focus on, we use the PMI talent triangle actually um, to help us build that curriculum. So we do some, some leadership training, we do some strategic business management training, and then we do some technical project management training. And we do that every quarter. That's wonderful. And we will talk a little bit later about the other things that you put in place, uh, for example, the framework that, that, you, that you adopted, uh, but this focus on the human side and the talent and really working through all the challenges that you have faced, uh, uh, you must have faced with HR to, to change the perception of the role of the project manager, the compensation discussions, the career path, those are all very time-consuming, very challenging for management, and in my view, that's that's why sometimes they don't get done. And instead, there is the easy solution of getting using a software. Or this is an entire interview that I would love to have with you again, just to focus on this aspect. Talk to me a little bit about once you put in place the implementation management office. How did that help you meet the challenges? that WellPoint was facing? So there were a couple of other things that we did as, as we were building out the, the capabilities of the project management office. So if it's okay with you, um, I'll elaborate a little bit on that because it'll eventually answer your question about how it helped us meet the challenges. Um, one of the things that, that we decided was if we were going to have this very small but highly competent team of people who could deliver on strategic um, imperatives that we needed permission from the executives um, to, to limit our portfolio specifically to their strategic objectives. And, um, and so that was the next thing that I did was I, I petitioned to the CEO, COO, CFO um, to say, I want your permission to be able to say no when people come and ask me to do things that are not part of your strategic plan for the year. Um, and and they thought that was a great idea because we we had only six people at that time and so you know and then I asked them to clarify so what is the strategic imperative for us this year, 
And um, that year and continues to be the exact same strategic comparative every year since then is grow the business. And so my portfolio has a very clear um, litmus test when somebody comes to me and says, can you help me and give me some project managers because you guys are so good at getting things done. I can ask them two questions. Um, Does your project um, increase the top line revenue of the organization? Um, or, and, or, because these things tend to go together, will it bring new members, new insurance members into the company? And if you can't answer yes to one or both of those questions, then unfortunately my answer to you is I, I am not able to allocate resources to your initiative. So when IT comes to me and says, can you help us with this system migration? Unfortunately, no, I can't. Um, You guys are going to need to solve for that on your own. I am, uh, my organization is an instrument for the senior executives of this organization to execute on their strategic imperative for the year. And this year, it is grow the business. And so um, that, that, you know, that can change at their prerogative. But for the seven years I've been doing this now, um, that imperative has remained the same. And I believe um, it will continue to be that way for the next several years as well. And so that was one huge thing because when you can refine the objective for or the, the charter for your PMO, it makes it very easy for you to protect your portfolio from things that would come in and you know cause scope creep and get in the way of you executing. The other thing that we realized was if growth was the number one strategic imperative and the way that our business operates, we usually get a very robust set of requirements from our states and a very small time, amount of time to get it done. And so I, was, I really didn't have the luxury of wasting even a second from the time that we won a contract to the time that it had to go live. I didn't want to have to negotiate for resources from around the company over and over and over and over again. Uh, because that was just going to chew up way too much precious time for execution. And so what we agreed to with the executive team was to invest in dropping um, full-time dedicated um, subject matter experts in the functional areas that um, um, had the highest impact from any of our uh, implementations. And over time, we started with 12. So I funded 12 positions and I put them in the various different functional areas around the company that were were always at the table on every single implementation. Over time, that 12 has grown to 74. 74 different distinct functional areas that are impacted when we grow our business. Um, And each one of those, but the model has sustained itself. So each one of those 74 different functional areas has an, an, an embedded dedicated or designated subject matter expert who comes to the table. When I kick off a project, they just know that that's their job. And they come to the table and they represent their functional area and and they ensure the execution of the tasks within their functional area. So they can speak authoritatively on behalf of their function and then they can also, they're empowered to um, make sure that everything gets executed, all their deliverables get executed. And what that does for me as a portfolio leader is it 
it just saves me days and days of time. I don't have to negotiate. I, I know if I look at the requirements of my project and I need somebody from the call center and somebody from the claims processing unit and somebody from the pharmacy department, I already know the names of those people to put in the boxes because that's their full-time job. And in the beginning, when we were growing this model, people were, you know, understandably a little bit reluctant to say, well, you know, I can't give you my best thinkers, you know, to work on your project. And I said, you know, it's the number one strategic priority of the company. I think we really have to invest here. <laughs> so I had that right. leverage already. And the agreement that I made with them up front was if for any reason my portfolio is not um, robust enough to keep that person busy full-time, you may use them for whatever you need done in your department under the condition that I never get a response that sounds like, oh, I'd really like to work on your project, Serena, but I'm working on something for my boss right now, so I can't do that. Your, right. you know, any, anything that is not my work, not my portfolio, goes to the back burner in order to free right. that resource up. So, because we agree, we all agree as a company, as a leadership team, that this is the number one strategic priority. And so, right. you know, we hear PMI talk about how you have to have your PMO aligned to strategic imperatives, but that's a perfect example of why. It, it is your, your very survival as a PMO depends on it because it's very difficult for a functional leader to say to you, oh, no, I can't give you any resources when what you're working on is supposedly the most important thing to the company. You just get an awful lot of leverage out of that. And so those two things, so having, having that um, permission from the executive team to limit my portfolio to the number one strategic imperative and then having the investment of having that matrix of subject matter experts around the company who come to the table time after time after time and every, you know, every project that they do increases their level of expertise and experience. What that gave us was this ability to um, give a good, solid, repeatable uh, output every single time. And it also gave us a framework by which we could scale. So as the Affordable Care Act came in, and this is getting back to your original question, like how did we meet these challenges? As the Affordable Care Act came at us, what we were able to do was say, okay, you know, you have one subject matter expert in your functional area, but we've now got, we've gone from 10 to 20 projects in the portfolio. Now you need two, or you might need three. But the model stayed intact. We just added more subject matter experts. And so, you know, we, we had to find out which of those people were going to work on each project, but there was still a deep subject matter expert coming to the table as their full-time job from each functional area. And so it, it gave us the ability to grow very quickly and scale with the, with the growth of the company um, and also continue to deliver time after time after time a very high-level result because we had the same people working on the project teams, project after project after project. And, you know, in, in some ways I have to say um, – we did. We we put the model in place out of desperation. I realized that I couldn't chew up precious execution time having to negotiate for resources every time we won a contract. But what we sort of accidentally found ourselves, you know, creating was this really beautiful model that that expands and contracts as necessary um, based on the amount of of projects that we have in our portfolio. And I know you mentioned previously that uh, you know you you probably were not practicing agile as 
you know, textbook agile, but I can't think of anything more agile mm -hmm. than what you did here in terms of working on your processes first, building that common processes that were mapped to PMI, PMBOK, worked on the human side, getting the talent in place. And then you did the unthinkable, which is getting a charter that says to limit your portfolio to only working on the strategic directive. And then you took it to the next level and you said, I want to have that core functional expertise that I need within this umbrella of this group. This is just, to me, it's an amazing, it's an amazing combination of factors that now it makes sense, it makes total sense of how you're able to quickly turn around and be agile as well as scale. Mm -hmm. To me, it is so clear. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, you know, as I said, you know, when, when you're in it and you're just facing your daily job and your daily challenges, you're just trying to react and come up with the best possible organization you can to respond to the challenges. And, and it wasn't until we, we really took a look back at when, when our leadership said, you know, we think you should be nominated for this PMO of the Year Award. My first reaction was, what? You know, we have so many other ways we could improve. There's got to be other people out there that are better than we are. But when we sat down and, and, and really looked at the model we had created and, and went back through history, if you will, and, and tried to tell the story, and we realized how important it was the what we put in place and, and how useful it was. And and I'll add that I understand how I'll use the word blessed because that's really how I feel. How blessed we were to have um, a, a CEO and a CFO and a COO who were willing to put that much investment behind executing on their strategic imperatives. They really understood. Because if you think about it, I, I made a pretty tall request. First of all, don't ask right. me to do anything that basically I don't want to do, that you don't want done, basically. Um, don't ask me to do that other stuff, even though I could. And not only give me the top-notch talent for my own team, but then spend the money and be willing to have this whole cadre of people around the organization that are full-time dedicated to executing on this strategic imperative. That's a huge investment. And, and you know, I got them to understand this concept of developing a core competency for execution, for strategic execution, and they really understood it. And they understood that that doesn't come for free. That takes investment, and it takes time, and it takes money. And so... Um, I was so blessed to have, you know, the highest authorities of our organization standing behind me saying, yes, we, we support her idea and we're going to give her the money so that you guys can all have these experts in your area. And, and you know, the, the, the other side of that coin was, and you better well deliver <laughs> the results that yes. you're promising us. And fortunately, so far, so good. You know, we've been able to, you know, there have been years where we've grown at 40%. There aren't many organizations that are growing like that. And so to be able to absorb a 40% increase and then a 38% increase and then a 22% increase, you know, double digits year after year after year, we had to have this sort of, I guess it is agile. When I think agile, I think Kanban boards and sprints and stand-up meetings and, you know, all of those formal, you know, technical agile practices, which we are not following. Um, but we are very fluid, expandable, contractable as the business requires. And 
Um, and we don't ever take anything for granted. Just because we wrote a PMP manual seven years ago doesn't mean we're still practicing that same set of policies and procedures. We review that manual every year. We innovate um, you know, our practices and elevate our practices. We rewrite that manual and we reteach our staff what the new way is to do things. And, and you know, we continue to, to kind of evolve with the business and try and make sure that we're giving enough process to get the work done without so much process that we're impeding you know, the, the work getting done. And it's a very fine line that you have to walk on a day-to-day -day basis because not every project is the same. And some need 17 different documents and one only needs six. And you need to be smart enough to figure out what does your project require and only do what we really have to do in order to get this successfully over the go-live date. And talk about how uh, the implementation uh, management office has evolved into what it is today and their Wells Point or um, Anthem's government business division. Okay, sure. So we were acquired, we, we were purchased, Amerigroup was purchased by WellPoint back at the end of 2012. And at that point in time, WellPoint, the, the company that bought us, had an enterprise project management office that had 1,200 project managers and 465 business analysts in it. And, you know, I've, I've been in this business for a long time. I looked at that fact and I thought, wow, um, we're probably going to get absorbed up into that gigantic organization. And, um, you know, we're going to have to learn how to do things the way that the company that bought us does them. And um, ironically, just the opposite has transpired over the last two and a half years. Um, they took a look at what was at that time about 20 project managers in my IMO and said, listen, we don't know how they're doing this, but they've got 20 people and they're delivering you know, $3 billion worth of top line revenue. We don't want to break anything. So let's just watch and see what we learn. Um, and over the course of the last two years, that huge enterprise PMO has been disbanded. Those 1,200 project managers are either no longer with the company or they've been dispersed into the business, and the same with the VAs. And there, there is still an, an EPMO governance body, um, but they primarily point at, at the spend in, in within the IT realm. And so they really determine how projects are run within IT. They've, they've really not touched what the IMO process does. And in fact, they're starting to adopt a lot of the processes that we have in place in the IMO um, and, and, and push those out even into the larger IT organization. So um, it's been um, very unexpected, very flattering, very humbling to see that you know what we were simply doing to meet the needs of our business and our customers turns out not just to be scalable for our our own business, but you know we were a Fortune 400 company that got purchased by a Fortune 40 company, and so um, you know we're now part of a 70 billion dollar a year organization that feels like our model has value for that organization. And, and that's just overwhelming to me sometimes and very humbling to me when I think about that. So, um, and and I, I love the idea that we can take what we've done in, in the IMO and expand that across the organization to, to help the, the entire enterprise now um, 
get better at strategic execution. So um, it continues to evolve, quite frankly, Saman. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know that I know everything that's going to happen in the future, um, but but where we are right now is um, I've got these folks in the Enterprise PMO Governance Office coming and investigating and questioning and interviewing what we're doing to see if there isn't uh, an ability to carry it further across the organization. And that's just, um, it's a great confirmation that what we're doing here has value to the company. That, that confirmation and, and validation and vote of, of confidence in, in what you have accomplished, it speaks to the wisdom of the, of the new organization and how uh, they could recognize success when they see it. Yeah, we were, I mean, you know, it could have gone lots of other ways. And so, um, yeah. and you know, I, I just told my staff when, when we were being purchased um, that, uh, yeah, I've been in this industry for a long time. Mergers and acquisitions are, are part of, of, of the business model. And um, the best thing that you can do when something like that happens is just continue to be excellent. Be as excellent as you possibly can because excellence always rises to the top. And um, I think they, they look at me now like I'm psychic, and it really was just based on my <laughs> previous experience. But, you know, if you're doing something well um, and, and the people who purchased you want to continue to do well, um, they spent a lot of money to get us. And so, you know, you know, give them their money's worth, basically, you know, keep being excellent. And it's, it's worked out very well for us. Um, and we're really proud of the fact that we're not only still standing, but um, we've got a seat at the table and people are asking us for our opinion about how project management should evolve for the entire enterprise. So before we delve into the nuts and, and bolts of the, of the PMO f uh, framework that you have adopted, I would like you to share with us, from your perspective, how do you see that the implementation methodology that you have developed and practiced and the PMO infrastructure you put in place, especially as it evolved under the government business division, how does it serve as a competitive advantage, such as winning of government RFPs and so on, and how does it contribute to the overall success of the organization? Oh, wow. That's, um, that's a pretty robust question. I think um, the first part, the competitive advantage part, um, is is an easier question to answer. We win our government contracts mostly as a result of formal government procurement process. And so because it's a government contract, the government entity, whether it's at the state or federal level, has to put out a request for proposal. And, and they have to be willing to entertain proposals from any qualified bidder. So they can say, in order to be considered qualified, you have to meet certain criteria, like you need to have a local presence in, in the market or whatever their criteria are. Um, but if if any any of our competition meet the criteria, then everybody can bid on that business. And so um, the proposal process, we don't have salespeople per se in our business. This is how we win. And so we, we have to monitor, scan the environment, and look for um, those um, RFPs, those requests for proposals coming out um, from various entities, and then we have to evaluate those requests for proposals and decide which ones um, meet our business model and we think that we could give a good proposal for. Um, and so the, the winning the award, having the IMO, having this idea of a, um, a core competency around strategic execution, especially related to growth, um, 
allows us to write in our proposals exactly that. Um, and I think that it is a differentiator from what I've seen, because it's all in the public domain, right? Because it's a government process. Once the contracts are awarded, all those proposal documents become public knowledge. And, and we can, with, through the Freedom of Information Act, we can see what our competitors um, proposed and bid on the business. And so from what I've seen, our competition has not been willing to make the kind of investment that, that, that my executive leadership team made in terms of building that core competency, that idea that every project, we handle it the same, we follow the same process, we use the same people, they've been here for years, they know the business, they know how to handle um, these contract requirements, and, and we can get in a room, and we've all been working together for so long, we can impress a state regulator because we can talk about the process that we're going to follow um, and you know the kind of artifacts that we will produce and, and how seamless the implementation will be for them, our customer. And, and I think it is a huge competitive advantage over um, what our competition can write about and what they can deliver in, in real life. And now that um, you know, we've won this uh, PMO of the Year award, um, what our proposal says that we have award-winning implementation core competence. And so they were, the executives came up with this idea of, you know, you have to be nominated by an executive in your organization for this award, PMI. You can't nominate yourself. You, your executive team has to, to basically say, state to PMI that they believe that you are a strategic advantage for them. And so um, the executives decided that, that, that this was a good idea, not only for us um, in terms of having a competitive advantage, but that it would lead to increased success um, overall for, for our bidding process. And um, I can tell you, and I, I certainly absolutely do not state this meaning to sound like this is only because of us, but um, you know, we haven't lost a bid over the last two and a half years. And so um, we have very strong capabilities. We happen to be, um, you know, we were very strong at Amerigroup. When we merged with WellPoint, um, it made us all the more um, capable. And, and I would say that, that we really pulled ahead of our competitors just by joining forces with those two companies adding the you know, award-winning implementation competence, um, just sort of icing on the cake. Uh, but I do believe that, that our executives um, see the IMO as, as a, a special instrument that they have at their disposal in order to ensure that their promises that they're making to our customers come true. And, and I really personally see that as my responsibility. Whatever they envision and they promise, we need to be able to deliver. And so, you know, when they are developing these proposal documents, I don't manage that proposal development process, but I observe it to make sure that what they're writing in those documents is actually doable, that my people will be able to execute on those promises um, if we win the business. And so, I hope that answered your question, but I, I do think that um, having that investment in that core competence sets us apart from our competition right now in, in the market. And um, in, in the United States, um, PMI has done an amazing job at the federal level of, of um, 
lobbying for federal contracts to require that any contract awardees bring certified project management professionals to the table when when they're executing on those contract awards. That hasn't pushed down to the state level yet, um, but the fact that we can talk about that we can we could meet the federal standard even though we're only operating at a state level um, is also a competitive advantage. And um, I'm actually working very closely with PMI's government relations representatives to see if we can't start driving some of those requirements into state contracts as well because I think that it'll just put us one, one more step ahead of our competitors. If state contracts require that you use PMPs during the implementation right now, my company's got that nailed. And so, um, you know, I, I think it would be great if, if we could see that start to happen. And you know, what I've been thinking about as you were talking is the, the fact that much of the criticism of the PMOs has been the focus on compliance and risk management. And there hasn't been, in my at least in my experience, talking about the PMO as a as a lethal competitive advantage, and and I think this this is a clear uh, case study in in this particular uh, example. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I think because we work in the government space, and not just the government space, but government healthcare, which are two very highly regulated um, disciplines. Um, any government contract has got a lot of oversight, but government contracts delivering healthcare services have just an enormous amount of oversight. So compliance for us um, is extremely important because it can be very costly. Um, the slightest slip in, in allowing um, protected health information to be revealed to people who shouldn't be uh, have access to it is an extreme, carries an extremely costly penalty for us. So making sure that all of our processes are um, regulatory compliant um, and, and contractually compliant are, it's just a, a way that we do business here. We don't even think twice about it, um, but, but you're right, um, you know, we help ensure it through our implementation processes. I want to delve a little bit more into the uh, framework. Um, first, um, how is the PMO structured? Okay. Um, so the, the current structure of, of our PMO uh, looks like this. We've got myself at the top um, as the PMO leader, and then under me, uh, my top-line management team are really, I would say, our portfolio managers, each of them in their own right. Um, and I have four, um, one of whom is slightly more senior than the other three, but they each have a component. So my overall portfolio has got about 20 projects in it, and it's worth about $7 billion right now in top-line revenue. So um, what I've done is with the, the three portfolio leaders who are slightly more junior than the fourth, each one of those leaders is responsible for about a billion dollars worth of the portfolio each. And so that might be one big, very complicated project, or it could be one or two smaller projects. Um, that fourth, more senior uh, portfolio leader has about $4 billion worth of projects under her um, wing, and, um, and she has the staff to handle that. It's probably about um, I would say 8 to 10 of the projects, uh, maybe even 12 of the projects, 12 of the 20, with, with the other 8 or so being dispersed uh, across the, the three first portfolios. Um, and then, so 
for the first three portfolio leaders, they each have a team of at least eight. Um, and and those could be program managers, project managers of different levels, and, and project administrators. Um, the, the fourth portfolio leader, who's got the larger piece of the pie, um, also has um, some, I would say, program directors who work for her. So she's got three program directors uh, who might have um, one or more programs that they're overseeing, and then they each have a team of at least eight people um, that, that are managing those various projects. And again, can be all different levels of the career ladder underneath those people managers. Um, she also has that, that the, the fourth portfolio leader also has um, a couple of individual contributors who are helping her with uh, things like portfolio analysis, portfolio reporting, um, budget management, et cetera. So um, she's got um, the the more robust portfolio, has more people. She's probably got about, um, I would say, probably about 30, 35 total headcount under her, with the remaining uh, 30 being dispersed uh, across the the other three portfolio leaders. And that's kind of how we have things structured right now. That's changed. Um, every year we look at the portfolio that we believe we're going to have in the pipeline and we try to organize the, the, the IMO to address the workload. And so it wasn't always that exact structure. In the past we've had slightly different structures, but generally the people who report to me are portfolio managers and they have um, a, a collection of projects and programs that they're responsible for. So that's basically what the org chart would reflect if you saw my org chart. Talk about how different roles within the IMO are assigned to different phases of the project from the strategic planning phase to the execution phase to the project closure. Sure. Um, great question. So um, what, what we've determined and, and you know, what is supported um, by the, the PMBOK guide is that um, at the beginning when you're in the planning phase of a project, especially a very complicated project, that it, it makes sense to have your most senior, most seasoned, most strategic um, thinking project leaders involved in that planning phase to make sure that um, we've properly assessed all the obligational documents, the contract, the proposal, et cetera, um, and that we've um, um, drawn out of those documents all of the requirements and accurately not only identified but documented the requirements for the project and then taken those requirements and translated them into um, a project schedule, a robust project schedule. And so at that beginning phase when we're going through planning, um, because our timelines are often very short, we don't have time to make a mistake. We have got to get our plan solid up front. So we put our most senior talent on, on the planning phase of any given in initiative. And then once we have um, a good solid plan in place, we feel that sort of our mid-level talent it should be able to step in and execute against that plan. If we've done a good job with requirements identification and, and, and documenting a, a good robust schedule, then a good mid-level project leader should be able to step in and manage all or part of that project. And then um, as we start getting into the wind down part of the project and getting towards the project close phase, um, we find this is an opportunity for some of our lower level project talent to step into a leadership role, but just as things are winding down and, and, um, and, and all the loose ends are being tied up. So the pressure is not as intense 
um, but they still get the opportunity to have been on the project all along and have been supporting the project all along, but now they can kind of step into the leadership role as things are closing down, and they get that um, sort of the soft skill confidence building of, of being the face of the project um, uh, so that um, they can be prepared to move into and, and up the project, um, the career ladder as, as the next project comes along. Can you share some of the best practices you have adopted as part of the IMO framework? So I think we've discussed several of them already, but um, just sort of within the, 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 the framework, just within the department, not talking about the matrix and, and, and the charter, et cetera, um, I think w what I just um, talked about with regard to, you know, having certain levels of talent come into the project at certain times in, in the project's life cycle is definitely a best practice that, that we um, uh, use. The other thing that that we practice very robustly is is we stick to our our PMP manual. We make sure that um, people are are trained when they come onto our team. We have a very robust onboarding practice, um, and there's a there's a four week uh, process that they go through um, that helps indoctrinate them to the company, to the industry, to our department, um, even to the physical surroundings. You know the building that we're working in. They get partnered up with somebody who is is more experienced, but doing the same role that they've been hired to do. So they sort of have a buddy system, um, and they can shadow and and ask questions of somebody who really knows the role that they've been hired to do. And then within that four week time frame, we have a two day intensive. Uh, we call it IMO 101, and it's based on our PMP manual. Um, but everybody who comes into the department has to go to IMO 101, and that's where they get grounded in the process that we use. And, and it, it helps set the expectation of, you know, if you're in the initiation phase, these are the three documents we expect you to use. This is how you fill them out. These are the, the you know, the stakeholders that you need to bring to the table, et cetera. It's very um, detailed instruction, and so. Um, you know, we found that that helps get people up to speed quickly and in a productive mode uh, more rapidly than before we were doing that. So we definitely feel like that's a best practice. We invest a lot of time in training people when they first come on board. Um, because the nature of our work is is pretty daunting, and people can get scared <laughs> when they first arrive. Um, you got to learn all the process and the practices, and and we've got this really complicated project that we're trying to execute on. And so, um, we it goes back to that thing that I said earlier. You know, if you take care of your people, they will take care of the business. And so, I actually teach IMO 101 myself. Um, and so that's two days every month that, that I spend. And, and I, in my personal opinion, I, there's nothing better that I can do with my time than invest it in, in the competence of my staff. And so, you know, I often get um, comments from people who attend IMO 101 that they can't believe that I spent two whole days um, myself teaching them um, how we do things in the IMO. And, I think that that sets a tone, and so I would say, as a PMO leader, I would recommend that as a best practice. When when your people see that you care enough, that you're willing to invest, you know, two whole workdays 
which to me doesn't feel like that much. Um, but they, they take it as a, as a very valuable um, investment in them. Um, and then, you know, on a quarterly basis, we also, I mentioned this earlier as well, we pull everybody off of their day job and we put them in a room together and, and we make sure that we do skill building. And, and I deliver a lot of that content myself or facilitate it being delivered by other experts so that, that, that they do see that I'm personally investing in them. It's not that I'm somebody who sits up in an ivory tower. Um, and, you know, we, we we are not all co-located. So I have part of my team in three different buildings all in the same city. But um, right now we're not co-located because we've grown so fast there was no space to absorb um, the size of my team. Um, fortunately, we get to change that in, a, in about a week, and we're all going to be co-located again. But, you know, I work very hard to make sure that, that I'm present um, and available for, for those folks um, and because it's a tough job that we're asking them to do. And I would say that as a, a personal best practice for a PMO leader, um, there, there's n no better use of your time than investing it in your staff. Uh, talk a little bit about how PMO supports the career development of mid and junior level talent. There's quite a few things that we've put in place here. So this actually is not specific to mid and junior level talent, but um, Anybody who's credentialed or wants to be credentialed um, as a PMP, you know, you have to acquire a certain number of contact hours in order to sit for your exam, and then you have to maintain your, your credential by earning 60 PDUs over a three-year cycle. And so um, one of the things that we do is um, we have all of our credentialed PMPs sign up to teach um, what we call we call it PMKS, Project Management Knowledge Sharing. Um, it is basically a brown bag lunch session, um, and it's offered virtually via WebEx, um, or if you're here, you can come into the room. Uh, and it's, it's one hour of, of PDU-worthy instruction on a project management uh, topic. And um, it's delivered by PMPs, both within my IMO and from around the rest of the organization. And sometimes we even have guest speakers come in um, and deliver that content. So that's something that we do for everybody, not just the mid and junior level talent. But um, with, with the junior and, and, and mid-level talent, um, I think we talked a little bit about this. You know, the way that we put them on projects, assign them on projects, and the places that we put them, you know, we want them to feel challenged but not overwhelmed. And so I would never put a junior level project manager in the lead of one of our projects. What they would probably do is they would lead a component of a project. And so we've kind of compartmentalized the work products on our projects so that, um, and we've, and we've, um, prioritize them in terms of difficulty. So, for example, um, most of our projects in, are, are, are growth. They're all growth related. So, but that means that we're not only growing the the dollars and the membership that are coming into the company, but we have to hire people to service those new members. Which means we have to expand our real estate footprint. We have to add desks, and we're hiring people, and we need computers put on desks, etc. So, one of the more um, intuitive work groups on any one of our projects is something we call human capital. And it basically brings together all the stakeholders required to recruit, hire, train, and equip a new associate. And you know, you don't need to know an awful lot about the health insurance industry or our company to understand 
you know, the, the, the execution steps that are required to, you know, make sure that the, the ads are in the newspapers and, you know, the jobs are posted and then the recruiting is happening and the interviewing is happening and do we hire these people and are the desks ready to go and are the phones working and, you know, it's, it's more intuitive. Most people can uh, intuitively understand what needs to happen on that work group. Um, versus something that's a little bit more esoteric, like how are we going to configure the system in order to adjudicate claims on a very unique set of medical codes. That takes a little bit more practice, right? You need a little bit more time in the saddle to understand that. So as a junior project manager, you could probably come in and work on the human capital sub-team and run that because it doesn't take a lot for you to understand. As long as the plan's been laid out, um, you can follow that plan and you intuitively can understand whether the desk is ready or it's not ready or the person's been hired or they've not been hired. And then as you get more time in the saddle, then you get put on more complicated um, sub teams to run. And then as you move up and you're more junior, um, I mean not junior, but you're more in the mid-level, um, you might get you know, several sub-teams that you're running. Um, and, or you might lead a less complicated initiative independently. Um, and then as you get further up, then you start becoming the leader of these complex initiatives and you've got several project managers working with you handling all of these sub-teams, etc. So um, that's really how we internally kind of help people step up the career ladder um, by giving them, you know, increasingly challenging assignments um, over time. And I really appreciate this model about how you can, as a project manager, uh, start at a, at a junior level and, and learn um, at a pace that allows you to actually learn and absorb the best practices versus coming in, um, in the, you know, at, with the... Um, misaligned skill level and, and project complexity and then end up developing habits yeah. that, that, that will become very difficult to get rid of. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's just because how, you, how you've been transitioned you know, in your career. And, and so I really uh, appreciate um, how, how important this is and how powerful it is. Um, and it makes sense that uh, putting this in place al allows you to bring in the right talent and then groom them not only into the technical aspects of project management but also understanding your business. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know it originated because um, you know we were trying to get to that repeatable um, model. You know, I, it's very common for a, a customer to say, "Oh, you know, Joe worked on our last project. Can we have Joe again?" And I can't always guarantee that Joe will be available. He might be working on another project. What I need to be able to guarantee is that you will get the same result no matter who I assign to your project. And so we started this practice in order to guarantee that result. The, the wonderful side benefit is that what, we, what we've seen is that the tenure, the, the longevity of the people staying in our department has gone up exponentially because they feel that they're you know, they're always getting another challenge, a new challenge, but not so much that they're overwhelmed and they're learning and they're growing and they're progressing and they're getting promoted. And so, you know, we've gone from having turnover of, you know, 12 to 18 month period to I've got people that have been with me for four or five and six years now. And so that's lovely for me personally because it makes my life easier, but it really delivers a much better result for the company because now I've got a six-year veteran that I can put on your project. And, and they've kind of been there done that. They've seen all the different things that, that could happen on a project. And before, 
I was losing those people long before the six-year mark, and so everybody was new all the time, over and over and over. Um, and it turns out, so here you go, you know, take care of the people, and hmm, they'll take care of the business, you know. Right, um, and absolutely, it, just, it, it works every time. And talk about competitive advantage, because if you have those that talent stay longer and stay with you and even continues to grow and continue to be innovative, that's talent that is not available to your competitors. Yes. And so that puts you in a, in a league of your own. And, and, and it's just amazing how this all makes sense, yet it is so hard to implement because um, it, it just is. It's very hard and it takes leaders like yourself to be able to sit through that entire process of making it happen. And, and, and now it really helps me and helps other members of our audience understand how you become recognized as a, a PMO of the year. So Serena, talk about a little bit about yourself, uh, what's next for you, and how our audience can learn more about you and contact you. Sure. Um, so myself, my goodness, um, I've been doing this actual job, this same job, um, for the last seven years. And I have to say, um, you know, I always tell my staff that you can learn to be a project manager. People can study the PMBOK and they can learn the philosophy and they can learn the technical skills. You can learn to be a project manager. I do believe that that's possible. Um, but I also believe that there are certain uh, component of the population that can't help being project managers. And, and I feel like I fall into that. You know, my, my whole approach to life, the way that I attack problems has always been um, a very project management or oriented, um, you know, sort of approach. And it was before people used those words, project management. It was certainly before um, there was a recognition of project management as, as a profession or even a discipline. I was always that person that, yes, I did my whatever my day job was, but if there was an extra project, I was the one that, that always raised my hand for it. And, um, you know, so... I, I'm really lucky to have a whole department full <laughs> of people who can't help it for the most part. That's who are attracted to this, you know, this department. You know, there's a bunch of people who, and we always joke about how much fun it is to live with people that can't help being project managers, but um, we tend to really enjoy being around each other during the day at work. And so, um, you know, when we talk about what's next for me, I've never had a job that was better suited to, to who I am and, and to what I really enjoy doing at work. So uh, while my staff is all, you know, very encouraging about, wow, you should get promoted into a bigger job. And, I you know, I'm very content doing what I'm doing. Now, I've been given a couple of other departments that are very complementary to my PMO, so I do have other responsibilities. Uh, but they are very similar, and they are attacking different problems. They're not doing growth projects. They're doing business improvement projects. But it's still, I have a couple of other portfolios that I'm overseeing in addition to, to this one that the IMO does. So uh, for the moment, in terms of me personally, professionally, I think that, um, you know, the job that I have is, is ideally suited for, for me. Um, however... I do realize that there are two things that I now feel at this point in my career I feel obligated to do. One is um, in order for me to continue to add value to this or any other organization that I'm associated with, I need to teach people how to do things 
the way that I do them and maybe even better than I do them. Um, and so, you know, the teaching, coaching, and mentoring portion of my role, both within my own department and outside of my department. So I, I have taken on um, that responsibility for people who are in my company but not in my department. I've done it for people who are in my PMI chapter and don't even work in my company and um, with people that I have met and encountered through PMI. By sharing what I've learned, my goodness, I wish I had met someone like me 20 years ago. And so if I can help somebody avoid all of the, you know, the tripping and falling and scraping your knees, you know, um, and they can, they can learn new lessons and make new mistakes. But if I can help them avoid the mistakes that I've made, then I, I really truly feel obligated to do that. And, and I enjoy doing that. I um. And the second thing that, that I, I have a, a very deep obligation to is I have gained so much advantage um, through my association with the Project Management Institute um, that, that I'm very committed to, to working um, as a volunteer in that organization. And so um, the award has really um, opened up a lot of doors within the PMI community for me. And um, it's very exciting. So I'm doing a lot more speaking and teaching and training on PMO mastery. And uh, although I still have my day job, a lot of my own free time is now being focused on um, teaching other people um, this model that we've been discussing today and, and helping them um, get their jobs done in a more effective way. Um, and I just returned from an engagement in Brazil and uh, that was just such an uh, awesome uh, opportunity to go down there and, and, and uh, do a keynote speech for their PMO summit um, in Rio de Janeiro. And so, you know, I, I love doing those things. I do those as a, sort of a labor of love, if you will. I do them on my own free time. Um, and, and I will continue to do that to the extent that, that I'm able to. And um, you asked about um, how people can get in touch with me. Uh, I have uh, set up a, a very small, humble website uh, that can be found at pmomastery.com. And um, it's the best way to get in touch with me. I, I didn't think my employer would appreciate me flooding my, my work inbox um, with, with people uh, contacting me, but I am uh, very, very open to being contacted and to having conversations and uh, coaching and teaching and mentoring uh, as much as I possibly can in my free time. Um, and, and, and that's really, um, I think, what's next for me. And we'll see. The sky's the limit after this. But um, I, I'm very, very excited about um, the amount of buzz that the award has, has created, not just for, for our team, but around PMOs and PMO mastery in general. I love the idea of, of seeing the competition for PMO of the year get more and more robust every year. I would love to see more international PMOs um, getting involved in that competition and winning that award. And so um, I've had conversations with people in Poland, in Brazil, in, um, um, in, in Istanbul, you know, people who are working on projects in, in different parts of, of the world and, and looking at, can my PMO win this award? And, and so if we can inspire other people to apply and, and to win, um, I, that would just, again, more icing on the cake. 
Well, Serena, congratulations again for being recognized as the 2014 Project Management Institute's PMO of the Year winner. And I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. And I look forward to continuing our conversations. Uh, and I do as well, Samad. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Guerrilla Project Management. You can hear more Guerrilla Project Management podcasts on iTunes and read more at guerrillaprojectmanagement.com.